massive car bomb exploded outside of a large federal building in downtown Oklahoma City, shattering that building, killing children, killing federal employees, military men, and civilians. The chaos in downtown Oklahoma City did indeed resemble Beirut after what police believed to be a 1,200-pound car bomb ripped through the nine-story federal building shortly after 9 o'clock this morning. If it seemed like war... It's like a garbage pile. It's, just, it's unbelievable. I found myself this morning looking back at things and thinking of things that I didn't really think about during the... During the thing, and, and tears still come to my eyes. Seemed like war. They are saying there's an eight-foot crater, and several, a uh, couple of cars at least, have been joined by the heat and the force of the explosion. In Lebanon, a spokesman from the Iranian-backed Hezbollah said, "We are only interested in liberating our land from the Israeli occupation. We have no relation with the explosion inside the United States." There you see the farmhouse right now. Uh, this is where two individuals, we believe two, maybe more, uh, were being sought. Seemed like war. That's a farmhouse said to be owned by two brothers with possible links to the bombing. They are identified as James Douglas Nichols and Terry Lynn Nichols. Law enforcement sources say those two men and McVeigh were expelled from a paramilitary group for being too radical. Officials are refusing to speculate on what motive any of these suspects might have. He told me earlier this evening, having to do with experiments in bomb-making and a passionate anger against the federal government for its actions against the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas two years back, is circumstantial but telling. One suspect, according to our sources, is in custody now. 27-year-old Tim McVeigh, the crew cut John Doe number one in the FBI sketch, had been stopped for speeding in this Mercury Marquee. 60 miles north of Oklahoma City, about 90 minutes after the bombing. Reno ended at a wider conspiracy. I remind everyone that John Doe number two remains at large. He should be considered armed and extremely dangerous. There is a strong likelihood that other persons are involved in this tragedy as well. Seemed like war. Hello and welcome to the Deathcast. I am your host, author Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our fifth look at Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. Before we get into it this week, I have the normal show notes and plugs. If you would like to follow me anywhere on social media, just look for Ian Totten, author, Corpse Creek Publishing, or the Deathcast. If you're interested in signing up for the show's mailing list, you can go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com and just click on the sign-up button. Also, while you're at CorpseCreekPublishing.com, if you are so inclined, please consider making a donation by clicking on the Donate button. Buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of smokes. It is greatly appreciated to all those who do. If you enjoy what it is I do, please consider leaving a five-star review wherever it is that you get your favorite podcasts, as well as subscribing to the show's feed and sharing on social media. All of those things do help get the show out to more people. For those of you who have been enjoying the show the last few weeks, I really want to give a big thank you. There's a pod app called Good Pods, which is kind of like Goodreads, but for podcasts, and the show has consistently been within the top 50 true crime shows on that channel, beating out some pretty big names, so I just want to thank those of you who are listening to the show and getting the word out there. Lastly, if you are interested in becoming a Patreon member, just go to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon, and for as little as $2 a month, you can become a Patreon supporter of this show. There is currently one exclusive episode up there with more to come probably within the next few weeks. 
All right, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back, relax, close your eyes. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week, we had just gotten to the point where Timothy McVeigh had been discharged from the United States Army. If you'll remember, we got pretty deep into various conspiracy theories concerning the possibility that he may not have actually washed out of special forces training, but had instead been grabbed by the intelligence community. This is largely based on statements that McVeigh himself gave to people he knew prior to the bombing, as well as after being arrested for the bombing. As with so many things concerning McVeigh, however, it isn't so simple as to say, oh, that's rubbish, or yeah, no, this is true, we have documented facts, because a lot of his military record and government files were sealed and remain sealed to this day. So whatever you choose to believe, whether you want to believe that he was in fact operating on his own or could possibly have been involved with a government agency and that it was a infiltration of the alt-right militia movement that went awry. That is up to you. In December of 1991, Tim McVeigh returned to the Buffalo, New York area. According to some people who encountered McVeigh after he returned home, it was said that he felt both washed up and like a failure, further stating that McVeigh's eyes, he felt like a pawn of the Bush family in the war in Iraq. It's notable that McVeigh went into a depression after returning from overseas and supposedly washing out of the special forces. He seemed rather aimless. This was partially due to the fact that McVeigh had mistakenly believed that his status as a quote-unquote war hero as well as his military training would open up new possibilities of jobs for him. However, this was not the case. A number of factors were at play here, including a very high unemployment rate nationwide as well as hiring freezes in the types of companies that McVeigh was interested in getting jobs with. To give you an idea of the employment situation, in November of 1991, the unemployment rate in the Buffalo region of New York was 6.9%. Some sources state that McVeigh's Inclusion in being in the National Guard, the New York State National Guard, was compulsory. Others state that he did it simply out of boredom. I have read that he was only allowed to get released from the Army if he were to agree to join the National Guard as an active member. But again, as I just stated, I've also read that he did it out of boredom, so that's one of those many things in McVeigh's life that is up in the air. There's also the story that McVeigh told to countless individuals, most importantly his first set of defense lawyers, that he had actually been instructed to join the National Guard when he signed up to be a member of the intelligence community. Whatever the reasons, McVeigh ended up signing up for the National Guard, coincided with him working a job as a security guard, working at Niagara Falls, local zoos, as well as WWF shows in the region. His employers quickly noticed, though, that they seemed to be 
suffering from high levels of stress and anxiety, it was also noted that he had a difficult time differentiating between civilian protocols versus military when interacting with civilians at the various places that he was sent as a guard. McVeigh stated that his favorite place of employment was at the Buffalo Zoo. However, his job there did not last long. Mind you, he was working kind of as a subcontractor for a security company. Someone kept making prank phone calls, and McVeigh was able to trace these phone calls down. And after learning that the man was a former disgruntled employee, he had told this individual's mother that if the phone calls persisted, McVeigh would personally burn their house to the ground. Because of this and other incidents, the company decided to pull McVeigh from all job postings where he would be around the public. To quote one of his supervisors, he just couldn't deal with people. He wasn't a person I could trust to put in a high-pressure area. If someone didn't cooperate with them, he would start yelling at them, becoming verbally aggressive. He could be set off easily. McVeigh countered these statements by saying it was he himself who requested to be placed into situations that would have little to no public interactions. It was also noted that McVeigh was only able to succeed in terms of leadership and acting on his own intuition if he was in a situation which he had practiced over and over again. When he was placed into a situation where things suddenly happened, he became easily flustered and oftentimes would go off. This is not uncommon for people returning from the military. Don't let people tell you that it isn't. I have known and experienced myself that level of regimented mentality that comes from being in the military for an extended period of time. It takes months, sometimes years, to get out of that mindset and back into being a civilian where things just happen. McVeigh's supervisors at the security firm did state, however, he was always punctual and on time, did the job to the best of his ability, so long as he wasn't flustered, and that his real strength lay in following orders, not in giving them. It was also observed while McVeigh was working for this company that he seemed, at least to his supervisors, almost like a little boy who had not yet grown up. They also noted that he was, quote, wasn't an open type of person generally. He did not discuss his home or his love life or anything too deep or personal with his co-workers. McVeigh, for his part, stated to his attorneys that he found his home life during this period of time very stressful as his sister had to return to live with their father shortly before he got out of the military and had taken over the use of McVeigh's bedroom which relegated him to living on the couch. Further complicating matters was, according to McVeigh, a number of different factors. He said that he was never able to get any sleep, and he always felt overtired and stretched thin. While his father continuously complained, his sister partied incessantly, and the phone was always ringing off the hook. These are all indicators that an individual is suffering from PTSD, this constant overwhelmed feeling that people get from having been in high-stress traumatic situations. So it's not uncommon for an individual to feel these things when they're in a position such as McVeigh was. McVeigh also said he was dealing with what he termed as political stresses. This was 
from his heightened sense of what was really going on in the world around him, the level of propaganda that the public was being inundated with by both the press and the government. Keep in mind, he's saying all of these things. These, especially his quote-unquote political stresses, McVeigh at any point could have simply tuned out to politics and what was going on in the world by not watching TV news and reading newspapers almost constantly. But he chose to do this. So this is one of those things where he is just as at fault for surrounding himself with this information overload as the government was for sending him overseas and not getting him proper treatment and those that he served with upon returning. One other bit of information from this period of time that was noted by many was that although McVeigh could have physically gone and talked to friends and family, he preferred to continue writing them letters which he would drop off in their mailboxes or leave on a table for them to find. This is a surefire sign that something mentally was not right with McVeigh during this period of time, that he was under stress and anxiety that others could not comprehend, this inability to effectively communicate with others and instead doing so by letter. His friend Steve noted that during these initial few months back home, McVeigh's letters and correspondence became increasingly political in nature. Steve, who was aware of his friend's political leanings, also noted that there was no one local, at least to the best of his knowledge, to whom McVeigh could be getting this information. And it has been suspected by some that McVeigh may have been clandestinely involved in the white supremacist movement in upstate New York without the knowledge of his friends or family. I'm going to read a portion of a letter that he sent to Steve at this point to give you an idea of how McVeigh's mindset was. Read this book talking about the Turner Diaries when you have time to sit down and think. When I read it, I would have to stop at the end of every paragraph and examining the deep, deeper meaning of what I had just read. The book, without a doubt, has racist overtones, but please read it anyway just to view the literal genius of it. You can tell it was written as propaganda, but if you can recognize this, it should not be a threat. There are many other ideas besides the racism that are expressed that really are eye-openers. I know you are set on your racial views, and I'm not giving you this book to convert you. I do, however, want you to understand that other side and view the pure literal genius of this piece. Again, this is accomplished by not just simply reading this, but in analyzing every sentence you read. Think, what made the author write that paragraph, or what would be the deeper meaning in his trying to convey, or how by wording it like that is he trying to subliminally influence someone's thinking? If you look at it like that, it is a masterpiece. Again, it is a very high-profile book. Every pro and in-between person in America knows something about it. Let me know what you think. I'm sure you will. Steve was not interested in reading the Turner Diaries, obviously, and apparently McVeigh went off on him over this to such an extent that it threatened their lifelong friendship. McVeigh's letter-writing campaign was not limited to friends and family, however. He also began writing to local newspapers and organizations expressing his political beliefs in the hopes of turning others on to his way of thinking. It could be viewed that McVeigh, in these rambling discourses that he was sending out 
was hoping that they would get published and may in fact lead him to meet individuals in the white separatists movement. It could also be that he had just completely lost touch with most reality at this period of time and that it, his writings were simply the writings of a raving madman who was fueled by resentments and feelings of inadequacy and failure. It was during this period after coming back to New York that Tim suffered what has been described as a nervous breakdown. At some point, he showed up at his grandfather's home, uh, basically wearing a t-shirt and jeans, and according to his grandfather, it was apparent that Tim was extremely disturbed and anxious about something, although he would not discuss with his grandfather what it was that was bothering him, instead simply asking that he be allowed to take a nap. McVeigh, by his own accounts, began to contemplate suicide while lying on his grandfather's couch, although eventually he fell into a deep sleep. And when he awoke, he left his grandfather's house, and the two of them never spoke of the incident again. This isn't something that McVeigh kept to himself. According to his sister Jennifer, he actually relayed this story to her, informing her that the nature of the mission that he had been put upon was disturbing him greatly and that it left him completely disillusioned. According to Jennifer, this was all a major turning point in the life of Timothy McVeigh. The story that he relayed to his sister again recounts how he attempted to move on with his life, forgetting about the mission he had been put on, only for a man to unexpectedly arrive at his father's home and this man supposedly reminded McVeigh, stating that if McVeigh did not carry out the mission that had been given to him, he could very possibly face criminal charges or worse. This is again another one of those things concerning McVeigh where we only have his statements as well as those of his sister to go on. It could be true, it could be the workings of a uh, delusional mind attempting to not take accountability for his actions. His sister Jennifer stated that McVeigh began to become paranoid, fearing that the military was keeping tabs on him, and that both he, he himself and his entire family's lives might be in danger. She further went on to state that after the incident at McVeigh's grandfather's farm, he was noticeably more anxious and disturbed than before. Around the time of this nervous breakdown at his grandfather's house, McVeigh was actually promoted within his job to a desk job where he was to oversee the scheduling of others was in this job that he became friends with a woman by the name of Andrea Augustine. And despite the things that were to come in McVeigh's life, Andrea was to remain a close confidant of McVeigh. I am reading a letter that was published in Aberration in the Heartland of the Real the Secret Lives of Timothy McVeigh. This is a statement given by Andrea concerning McVeigh's time at the company during this period. Quote, he really did well as a security guard, so they brought him in the office to do scheduling. We wanted, worked a lot in the office together. At first, he was very quiet, socially awkward, and kind of shy. But the more I started working with him, the more I saw he was a nice guy. I liked his personality. He was fun. I liked working with him. We were always talking and joking. He was joking around all the time. He was very outgoing and funny, but you wouldn't know that if you first met him. 
But after talking to him, he'd come out of his shell and let loose. I never visited him at his home, but he came to mine a few times. We talked on the phone every day after work for hours, though. We were good friends. This was a fairly important relationship in McVeigh's world in that it's one of the few people outside McVeigh's already established close circle that he confided to that he had killed people while over in Iraq. He also let her know that this had caused him great mental and emotional anguish. After this, McVeigh was sent to a high-security area to work. I'm not really going to get into too much detail on this particular job posting, other than to say it was noted that McVeigh's mental and emotional health continued to deteriorate, and in conjunction with this deterioration, his strong political ideologies grew. It was noted, though, during this period of time that McVeigh was intrigued by the work being done at the Calspan property. Basically, this company did research and development for the federal government, so it's not surprising that McVeigh found the work that they did there rather enthralling, to the point that he would continuously ask people who worked for the company about the things that they were working on. This despite the fact that they technically were not supposed to release this information to anybody. One thing McVeigh is said to have discovered while working at this company was basically a training ground wherein the U.S. military would be training law enforcement officials in various battle tactics as well as espionage, eavesdropping, that type of thing. I have to imagine that learning of this type of thing taking place at a place you are working, especially to an individual such as McVeigh, had to have been very disheartening because he was already fostering serious anti-government feelings coupled with a belief that the United States government was lying to the American public, and the ideas that he was had gotten from the Turner Diaries and being around gun shows, I'm sure that in his mind, this further cemented the idea to him that the United States government was planning to enslave the entire population, or at the very least, infiltrate groups that the United States government saw as a threat to themselves. There is actually proof of this. A number of the programs that were developed in the 1980s and into the 1990s did in fact infiltrate numerous groups throughout the United States, and they continue to do this. It's not um, in the realm of fiction. This is factual. They did it back during the 1960s and 70s in COINTELPRO until getting caught by the Congress and stating that they no longer did this, but the truth is that the intelligence communities of the United States continue to do this type of thing where they will send individuals to infiltrate various organizations who the United States government has ostensibly listed as a threat to the greater good. During this period of time where we're talking, the main target or one of the main targets were these right-wing, ultra-nationalistic, white power movement organizations, which oftentimes took the shape of militias. We're talking organizations like the National Alliance, the White Aryan Resistance, the Nazi Party, any one of these organizations that you may have read about online or heard talked about in various television programs, these were the groups that the U.S. government was targeting. And this is are the groups that McVeigh stated he was sent to target and infiltrate. We will get into this more in just a moment. From author, author Alistair, Alistair Cross. Cross. 
comes the Vampires of Crimson Cove series. When the sun goes down and the fog rolls in, the darkness comes out to play in the little town of Crimson Cove. By day, it's an idyllic mountain village, but after sunset, stay inside and lock your doors. Between dusk and dawn, the streets run red with blood. Two brothers, Brooks and Cade Coulter, know all about the darkness. One fights it, and the other is part of it. And although he tries to stay on the side of light, can you ever really trust a vampire? This is what New York Times best-selling author of the Walking Dead series, Jay Anansinga, has to say. Put Bram Stoker in a giant cocktail shaker. Add a pinch of Laura K. Hamilton, a shot of John Carpenter, and a healthy jigger of absinthe, and you'll end up with Alistair Cross's modern gothic chiller, The Crimson Corset, a deliciously terrifying tale that will sink its teeth into you from page one. The Vampires of Crimson Cove series is available on Amazon in paperback, ebook, and audible. Also available on Kindle Unlimited. We are back. In May of 1992, McVeigh resigned from the National Guard, citing employment conflicts. Notable here is that McVeigh gave various excuses as to why he had quit the National Guard. Some were that he was just had too much on his plate with working as the schedule or at the security firm as well as working as a security guard. To others, he stated that the unit that he was assigned to in the guard had been disbanded. My own personal belief on this one is that McVeigh had reached a tipping point mentally and realized that he could no longer stay employed by an organization whom had wrought such mental and emotional destruction in his home, his own life, and thus he decided to sever ties with them. There's also the conspiracy theory aspect that McVeigh was ordered to cut ties to the National Guard at this point because he was about to receive orders to move out from the greater Buffalo area. After being discharged from the National Guard, McVeigh began putting in numerous applications with various organizations who were tied to the various operations that the federal government was undertaking to infiltrate subversive groups, including but not limited to the Border Patrol Agency. The U.S. Marshals and various other organizations. McVeigh did not get many of these jobs, and he blamed this on affirmative action, calling it, quote-unquote, reverse discrimination. While all this is going on, McVeigh's worldview is continuing to spiral. He spoke to his friends and family about the coming concentration camps for U.S. citizens that he believed the U.S. government was preparing to set up. Obviously, these are the workings of a paranoid mind, although if you believe the conspiracy theory aspect of his story, then they're not. In any regard, McVeigh is believed to have picked these ideas up from the various alt-right organizations that it is suspected he was in contact with during this period of time. You have to remember, McVeigh had never stopped his love of guns and gun ownership and was working his way through various gun shows in the area. Obviously, at these shows, you meet all types of individuals there are a lot of militia individuals who go to those types of shows, and it's very apparent that McVeigh began to 
as he was supposedly instructed, immerse himself into the white power culture. This was in conjunction with the things that McVeigh was inundating himself with. Again, remember, he was constantly watching news programs and reading newspapers. That was That's when he wasn't on the move. And his father began to notice that McVeigh was constantly talking about the United States government and his disdain for them, particularly what he viewed as the United States' bullying tactics when it came to other countries. And not long after this period of time that we're talking about Ruby Ridge happened, for those of you who are interested in the Ruby Ridge story, I believe I covered it at the end of part one. This really galvanized the militia movement in their assessment of the U.S. government as a tyrannical organization, but it also galvanized McVeigh's own personal beliefs that the U.S. government was acting tyrannical. After the events at Ruby Ridge, which involved the Weaver family, the federal government went on high alert, believing that the actions of the federal government and the subsequent deaths that had taken place would galvanize the far right into action. So they really ramped up their surveillance of these organizations who they were already infiltrating quite heavily, according to a former member of the Aryan Nations. If you were at a group of 300 Aryan Nation members, it was suspected that at least 30 of the individuals in the crowd worked for the federal government directly, meaning they were undercover agents, while the remaining part of the crowd, at least a third of them, would be informants. The paranoia on both sides, be it the federal government or these organizations, was extremely high after Ruby Ridge, and we can't say that it was unfounded paranoia, because the federal government really began working on these organizations, and at the same time, these organizations really began to ramp up their activities. I'm going to be reading a short portion from a former member of the Aryan Nations who has since disavowed his former racist leanings, and I'm reading this so you can get an idea of the mentality that was permeating this, these movements during this period of time right after Ruby Ridge which is really when McVeigh starts making inroads into all of this. What happened at Ruby Bridge consumed my life so much, it was all I thought about. I would wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it, how I wanted to take on government and get revenge. I would have a couple of beers, call the office of Utah Senator Orrin Hatch, and shoot my mouth off. In the end, they were like, this guy is easy, let's try to get him to bite. I became so paranoid and brushed up against so many sting operations, I just wanted it to go away. It was like a scene out of the most horrible nightmare you can imagine. One agent tried to get our brother and I to get on a plane under fictitious names and fly to San Diego, drive and pick up 500 M1 Grand Rifles to take them to the mine in Las Vegas, where 300 Las Vegas skinheads who were supposed to rally there, would then use the guns to take the city of Vegas hostage and demand the release of the order from prison. These were the kinds of stings that were proposed. The white power movement was so heavily infiltrated with phonies, wannabes, and federal agents, as well as from people that, from what I came to know, wouldn't have a problem killing a little kid. There really were the Buford types who were willing to go down and shoot up a school of Jewish children. For his part, McVeigh became even more vehement in his beliefs and hatred of the United States government. Those who knew him 
following Ruby Ridge marked a drastic change in his personality where now it seemed that 99% of what McVeigh was talking about was his ideological beliefs and the evils that he saw the United States government perpetrating against the United States citizens. McVeigh's father is said to have realized at this point that his son was becoming a radical. So you have to imagine that it was with some relief that McVeigh moved out of his father's home and into an apartment in Buffalo. Numerous reasons have been given by for this, some stating that McVeigh was still unable to sleep while at his father's house, others that apparently McVeigh had gotten into gambling at some point after his release from the military, and whether he was in debt to bookies or they owed him money, according to himself, he was constantly being inundated with phone calls by them at his father's house, as well as his sister's ongoing partying. So McVeigh ends up moving out of the house into this apartment where he had no telephone, and he continues to withdraw into himself, going so far as to align himself with the belief of the Sovereign Citizens Movement, who, if you're not aware of the Sovereign Citizens Movement, they basically believe that the United States government is an illegal organization, and thus they and all of things that they do are in and of themselves illegal, meaning that they have no authority over any of the citizens of the United States in all matters, but as it pertains to McVeigh, particularly in the matter of paying taxes, McVeigh did not believe in paying taxes, and according to his father Bill, the IRS was constantly trying to contact and locate McVeigh to get him to pay his taxes. But it was more than that. McVeigh also began subscribing to ideas that are really on the fringes of the white power movement. I know you're thinking to yourself, how is that possible? The white power movement is already on the fringes. You have individuals within the white power movement who are, you know, all about nationalism and, you know, just being for the rights of whites, so they say. But then you have others who are so far gone into this thing that they are actually listed on in places like the Southern Poverty Law Center as domestic terrorists simply because of the beliefs they have, in this case particularly Holocaust denial. For those unaware of what Holocaust denial, it's the belief that either the Holocaust never took place or that it has been grossly blown out of proportion in terms of the numbers of Jews who died during the Holocaust. McVeigh began to subscribe to this particular set of beliefs during this period of time going to read a small portion from a letter he sent to his friend Steve concerning this, just so you can get an idea of his mindset during this period of time. I want to warn anyone who's a little bit more sensitive to these types of things. You might want to skip ahead for a minute or two if this kind of rhetoric bothers you. Quote, you don't realize it, but you've been brainwashed to lock out all facts as soon as you hear the word Jew. Let's talk about the Holocaust. Six million Jews are listed to have been executed. Okay, you, yes, Jews were executed just like the current ethnic cleansing in Yugoslavia, but, and you're thinking, programmed to think, he's an anti-Semite, I will not listen anymore. But reason it out. Six million? What is the current population of New York City? Do you see what I'm getting out? Where the hell could six million Jews appear from to be executed? Has there ever been a name-by-name accounting? Oh no, to demand that would be racist. I call it researching history. To confirm its authenticity, but you instantly believe it. 
you can see just by that short portion just how unhinged McVeigh is becoming. Now, again, some believe that, you know, this was all implanted to him by his handlers, i.e. he was instructed to infiltrate the white power far-right movements in the United States and take on their way of life as well as their lingo and thought beliefs, and that McVeigh stating these things to his friends and family such as Steve and his sister Jennifer was just an extension of that deep cover. I would like to posit that it's what we're dealing with here is a man who has serious problems, both mentally and emotionally, had them prior to going into the military. We already know that he was already leaning towards this type of mentality, experiencing the things that he did while he was in the military, particularly over in Iraq, and then coming back and washing out of special forces, which he had put all of his hopes and dreams upon, He's floundering, he's spiraling, he's struggling to latch on to anything that will make sense of the world in which he lives and also his own personal life. And you see that quite a bit with radicals, be they radicals on the left or the right. Many of them are spiraling, going through personal issues that none of us know anything about. And because of this, because of these feelings of failure and inadequacy, they latch on to the most extreme of ideas and make them their own because it gives them this comforting blanket and this sense of purpose to their otherwise barren lives, which they have no control over so far as they can see. Just after the murders, at Ruby Ridge, McVeigh put in his two weeks notice with the security company, announcing to everyone who knew him that he planned to leave upstate New York. One other bit of information from this direct period of time is that an individual who McVeigh worked for who was involved in various government programs noted McVeigh's increasingly radicalized way of thinking and decided to make a recording of the things McVeigh was saying. This, as I understand it, was without McVeigh's consent. Through these recordings, you can hear the jumbled mess that was McVeigh's mind. He shifts almost seamlessly from talking about Holocaust denial to various other topics that he finds interesting, to going back into his political beliefs, back and forth, over and over again, almost in a manic-type way. During this recording, McVeigh also stated to this individual who was recording him that he should be aware that at some point in the future, people may come asking for him. Upon leaving New York, McVeigh gave his atypical varying answers to different people, the most consistent of these being that he planned on trying to make a go of things by working the gun show circuit, selling, buying and selling firearms and ammunition all around the country. This is important in that McVeigh's now really going to be confronted with the face of the extreme right by going into the gun show scene full time. Again, you know, this could be many reasons why he's doing this. Those who believe the conspiracy, again, believe that he was told at this point to go and do this. Others feel that it was, uh, you know, another last grasp attempt in order to take control of his own life. He did tell people, though, that he would be going to Michigan at some point. 
that is important as discussed in last episode, one of McVeigh's confederates in the coming bombing plot, Terry Nichols, lived on a family farm up in Michigan with his brother. I'm going to end this episode with a letter that McVeigh wrote to his friend Steve just before leaving New York. It starts, quote, As of January 29th, 1993, I am leaving New York to an undisclosed destination. Therefore, I believe this will be our last communication. Remember, I am out there, and America will remain free. The constitutional laws will return. If I am locked up, you can bet I will be labeled as either a schizophrenic or a white racist. But what is it really? Just a radical political view that people's society is not ready to accept. A radical thinker is viewed as having an illness. Because he does not, will not conform to the norm of society. Read this excerpt from an article on schizophrenia and mental illness. Followers of Freud said the illness was caused by bad mothering. Dr. Ronald Lang called them a sane response to an insane world. Novelist Ken Casey described the hospitalized mentality as being politically oppressed. Dr. Thomas Sars claimed that the illness did not really exist at all. For is it a defined illness to disagree with a majority view? Apparently, just as many people have been hospitalized for that same reason. Big Brother will do more than just jam. Ham radios. He will lock you up, isolate your views, and keep the sheep in the dark through oppression. So, we can take this letter to mean that McVeigh has simply completely disassociated himself from reality. We can also look at it from the conspiracy aspect, as I said, that McVeigh, you know, stated to individuals that he was told to leave upstate New York at this point. In fact, he told one member of his old unit in the Army that he would be leaving for a period of time as he was being sent on a mission. Whether that is true or not, really depends on your own inclinations and leanings. We are going to be leaving our story at this point and picking it up back up next week when we discuss McVeigh's traversing of the country and the various organizations he may or may not have become involved with. Again, if you enjoy this show, please consider leaving a five-star review wherever it is you get your favorite podcasts, as well as subscribing. Don't forget the Patreon feed at tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon. Till next week, I am your host, author Ian Totten. The Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid!